0: Hello there, and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast in the year 2021. I want to give a special shout out to our online donors who make this podcast possible by donating at ParadoxGiving.com. Today we start our series in the book of Deuteronomy, and this episode is entitled The Narrative of Deuteronomy. Today marks the beginning of our series in the book of Deuteronomy, and I'd like to begin this series with a disclaimer about the fifth book of the Bible. The disclaimer is this. The book of Deuteronomy is boring. Now I know, I know, I know you're not supposed to say things like that about books of the Bible, but the fact is, this book is just absolutely mind-numbingly boring. How boring, you might ask? Well, The book of Deuteronomy is a sermon given by Moses at the end of his life, and Moses' final sermon goes on for 33 chapters and contains over 25,000 words. My best guess is that it would have taken Moses 3 hours and 35 minutes to preach the sermon that is contained in Deuteronomy. A 3 hour and 35 minute sermon I don't care how funny Moses is. I don't care if he's got visual aids. It's impossible for a human being to be engaged for a three and a half hour sermon. To put that in perspective, if you started Peter Jackson's film, The Return of the King, at the same time that Moses started preaching, Moses would preach for a longer amount of time by 15 minutes than that epic film that was way too long in Return of the King. Now, you may wonder, why on earth are we studying a boring book of the Bible? And the reason is because all the way back in 2013, when we were still a young adult group called The Shadow, we made a commitment to do a sermon series in every book of the Bible. Well, we're now on book 57 of that 66-part series. And when you commit to doing sermon series in every book of the Bible, that literally means every book of the Bible, including the boring ones like Deuteronomy. So I'm going to try my best during this podcast and the upcoming episodes in this series to bring some life to the book of Deuteronomy. But I wanted you to know that if you read the book of Deuteronomy on your own, which I recommend that you do, and if you read it and you find it to be incredibly boring, I want you to know that's okay, because it is boring. But let's see if we can bring Some context, some history, some illustrations to this book, and find some life or inspiration behind these words that can help us in the year 2021 and beyond. So let's begin by recognizing where the book of Deuteronomy is in the history of Israel. Deuteronomy takes place a few decades after the liberation of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. Now, this is one of the best and most miraculous moments in all of the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. When God intervenes on the behalf of the oppressed slaves and liberates them with a mighty hand, this is a moment that we should all celebrate. So, Deuteronomy takes place after the liberation of slaves. But Deuteronomy also takes place right before Joshua takes over, And leads Israel on the conquest. Now this conquest is important because it's an unprovoked military conquest. And during our series in the book of Joshua, we talked about how unprovoked military conquests are a sin. So here you have the book of Deuteronomy sandwiched between this brilliant moment of liberation and this horrifying moment of conquest And right in the middle of all that is this boring sermon that goes on forever. So with that in mind, between these two liminal moments, we read the book of Deuteronomy, seeing what Moses said at the end of his life to the children of Israel. We read in chapter 1, verse 1, These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan, in the wilderness, on the plain opposite Suf. Between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and D. Zahab. Now, before we go further with our reading, I think it's important for all of us to have this mental image in our heads when we read the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is on the side of a mountain speaking to the children of Israel who are gathered in a mass below him. Now, I don't know how they necessarily heard him, but this is the image that should be in our heads as we hear each of these words from Israel's leader. Moses begins to speak by telling the children of Israel that God has told him a message. And in verse 7, we hear God say to the children of Israel through Moses, resume your journey and go into the hill country of the Amorites, as well as in the neighboring regions, the Arabah, the hill country, the Shephelah, the Negeb, and the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and the Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. In other words, Moses is telling the children of Israel that this upcoming, unprovoked military conquest is, in fact, the will of God. This is, of course, disturbing because when God promises land to the nation of Israel, We are left with questions as God provides land that is already occupied by people, the Canaanites, the Amorites, and so many more. If that wasn't disturbing enough, we turn to chapter 2 where Moses is continuing to speak. And in verse 32, he tells them a story about a recent battle between Israel and a king named Sihon. Moses says when King Sihon came out against us, he and all his people for battle at Jahaz, the Lord our God gave him over to us and we struck him down, along with his offspring and all his people. At that time we captured all his towns and in each town we utterly destroyed men, women, and children. We left not a single survivor. Now while many people hold up Moses as a spiritual role model, Here, he is bragging about the slaughtering of women and children. While we may think that this is an error or a lapse in judgment by Moses, he doubles down on this by telling them another story in chapter 3. He tells them about another battle that they recently fought against a king named Og. His words are, the Lord our God also handed over to us King Og of Bashan and all his people. We struck him down until not a single survivor was left, and we utterly destroyed them as we had done to King Sihon of Heshbon in each city, utterly destroying men, women, and children. Now what's really stunning about this is the contrast in our modern ethics and reading this ancient theology. Because while we would classify these actions as war crimes in 2021, Moses views the slaughtering of men, women, and children as a sign of divine providence and favor. He is using this to build his argument to his main point, which is found in Deuteronomy chapter 4. In this chapter, we find the thesis statement of the book of Deuteronomy. He says, So now, Israel, give heed to the statutes and ordinances that I am teaching you to observe, so that you may live to enter and occupy the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Moses then says, You must neither add anything to what I command you, nor take away anything from it, but keep the commandments of the Lord your God with which I am charging you. Now, this is cause for alarm from me because... This is the language of a cult leader. Don't add anything or take away anything to what I'm about to tell you are the rules. If you ever heard me say that on this podcast, you should stop listening to me immediately. A few verses later, in verse 16, Moses introduces the first of his many laws in Deuteronomy. He says, do not act corruptly by making an idol for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth you are going to cross over to take possession of that good land. So be careful not to forget the covenant that the Lord your God made with you and not to make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. Now this first law is an interesting law, particularly in the context of Deuteronomy. Because in chapter 5, the very next chapter after Moses gives this law, Moses goes through each of the Ten Commandments. This is really strange because it's redundant. The Second Commandment is that you cannot make idols. So Moses takes the Second Commandment and gives a long introduction to the Ten Commandments using the Second Commandment as one of the great benchmarks of what God wants from God's people in the Promised Land. In other words, Moses gives radical prioritization to the second commandment. Now, this is particularly strange to me because you would assume that Moses would talk about slavery at this moment. After all, his people have just endured ten generations of slavery. Why wouldn't Moses, right before they enter the promised land, tell the children of Israel, hey, we went through the abhorrence of slavery, we must never treat ourselves or other people groups with the same kind of cruelty that we just endured at the hands of the Egyptians. Why doesn't Moses absolutely and unequivocally condemn slavery for all time in the promised land? Instead, we have Moses saying, you know what the problem really is? Idols. Whatever you do while you are in the promised land, make sure that you do not have idols. Now, this, of course, elicits the question, why? Why is this commandment so important in the promised land? And Moses gives a rather stunning answer. In chapter 4, verse 22, Moses says, For the Lord your God is a devouring fire, a jealous God. So the whole reason why this commandment is so important is not because it makes the world a better place or enables the children of Israel to be more loving. No. The reason, according to Moses, is that God is incredibly insecure. And when you bring an idol into your culture, it threatens God's insecurity. And God becomes so filled with rage that God enacts God's own wrath upon the Israelites and threatens their extinction. Moses then goes on to say in verse 25 of chapter 4, When you have had children and children's children and become complacent in the land, if you act corruptly by making an idol in the form of anything, thus doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God and provoking God to anger, I call on heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. You will not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. This is as close as we can get to the thesis of Deuteronomy, which is if you worship idols, then God will remove you from the promised land. And I hope that when you hear that thesis, you all of a sudden understand why this book is so incredibly boring. (laughs) Not only is it a three and a half hour long sermon, but this whole thesis, if you worship idols, then God will remove you from the promised land, doesn't really have much to say to you and to me, does it? We don't live in the promised land. And I've been a pastor for some time now, and I've never talked to somebody who struggled with the temptation of physical idols. So upon hearing this thesis statement, I assume that there's something in your brain that just starts to check out because you're like, this book just isn't for me. I, I get that. But at the same time, I want you to know there is something quite human here that takes us a little bit of time to discover But I believe that is time well spent because it reveals something greater about who we are. So let's begin by looking at the contexts surrounding the writings and readings of Deuteronomy. Let's begin with the context of the setting and consider also the context of the reading. Now the context of the reading is always the easiest one for us to discuss. We are reading the book of Deuteronomy in the year 2021 CE. I currently am in the city of Redlands, California, and I am a Christian minister reading this text that was written a long time ago. Now, you may be in another city and you may have another profession, but you can easily fill in your own contexts for where you are reading or hearing this book being read. Now, the context of the setting is a little bit more difficult to find, but if you read the book of Deuteronomy, you can figure out that this book is set sometime around the year 1300 BCE. In chapter 1, verse 1, we read that this sermon is occurring in the wilderness, and the sermon is given by none other than Moses. When we take a moment and recognize the contrast between these two contexts, For me, I am filled with a bit more empathy for the people who originally heard the words in the book of Deuteronomy. After all, while I can say, "Uh, this thesis statement doesn't have much to say to me in the year 2021, I can understand that if people believed the thesis statement to be true in the book of Deuteronomy, it would have a lot more to say to them, you know, 3,300 years ago. And while that empathy may seem like a small thing, empathy is the first road to bringing about humanity to the scriptures. Now, we have two different contexts that we are talking about, the context of the setting and the reading. There is one more context that we need to discuss, particularly when we discuss the book of Deuteronomy. And that context takes place between the context of the setting and and the context of the reading. That context is the context of the composition, when the book of Deuteronomy was actually put down on paper. And to describe that context, I need to tell you the story of a king named Josiah, who lived in the seventh century BCE, about 700 years after the death of Moses. Now, Josiah's legacy is tied to a scroll, which sounds like a weird thing to tie your legacy to, right? But during Josiah's day, he spent all kinds of money restoring and refurbishing the temple. During this sacred remodel, the high priest, a man named Hilkiah, came before the king and said, We have discovered a scroll in the basement of the temple. We would like to read that scroll to you today. Hilkiah then read the scroll to Josiah, and after he heard it, Josiah stood up and in great anger tore his clothes and vowed that the nation of Judah would not be the same going forward. From that moment, Josiah led a massive religious reform, which you can read about in Second Kings 23. And while this massive religious reform went on for some time, I'm going to read for you just a few highlights from that time. Verse 4 of that chapter, King Josiah brought out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal and the goddess Asherah. He then burned them. In verse 5, he deposed of the idolatrous priests. In verse 6, he brought out the image of Asherah, burned it, beat it to dust, and threw the dust of it upon the graves of people. Oh, my word. Verse 7, Josiah broke down the houses of the male temple prostitutes. Verse 8, he brought all the priests out of the towns of Judah and others. He broke down the high places, which are shrines to other gods, and he destroyed them. Verse 10, he defiled an entire city named Topheth, which was dedicated to the worship of Molech. In verse 11, he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. He burned the chariots that were also dedicated to the sun. Verse 12, he destroyed altars and broke them into pieces. Verse 13, he defiled the high places to other gods and goddesses. Verse 14, he broke the pillars in pieces, cut down the sacred poles, and covered the sites with human bones. In verse 20, we read that Josiah slaughtered on the altars all the priests of the high places who were there and burned human bones on those altars. Here, Josiah systematically executes religious officials of religions that are not his own. And he does all of this religious reform with fire. Josiah acts like a tyrant, which is strange because when his story is introduced in verse 2 of chapter 22, we read that the author has a very high view of King Josiah. His words describing Josiah are as follows. King Josiah did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. Josiah did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In other words, the author of Kings, views Josiah as a hero. Now understand what happens in this story. Josiah is leading the nation of Judah until Hilkiah shows up with a long lost scroll. Hilkiah reads that scroll to Josiah and Josiah then uses that scroll as justification for a tyrannical religious reform that included genocide. Now if you're like me, You hear this and you think to yourself, good night, what on earth was in that scroll? Unfortunately, the author of Kings never mentions the contents in that scroll. So most people assume that we have no way of knowing what it was that inspired Josiah to become incredibly angry and start a very frightening religious reform. However, a couple centuries ago, a German theologian named W.M.L. DeWitt looked at the story of Josiah and looked at the rest of the Bible and said, Wait a second. Specifically, he looked at the book of Deuteronomy through the lens of the story of Josiah finding a scroll, and he came to a shocking realization. Every theological idea, every religious law, And every word from Moses' sermon in Deuteronomy ultimately serves the agenda of King Josiah. And W.M.L. DeWitt put forward the hypothesis that the scroll in Josiah's story is the book of Deuteronomy. When we look closer at the book of Deuteronomy, we realize that there is a strong emphasis on the centralization of religion and worship. So Deuteronomy bans all forms of worship outside of Jerusalem and encourages the people of Israel and then eventually Judah to make pilgrimages to a central temple where God is most present. This not only serves the agenda of Josiah, but also the high priest Hilkiah. And so WML DeWitt asked the question, what if Hilkiah didn't discover the book of Deuteronomy, but instead, the high priest Hilkiah wrote the book of Deuteronomy. Now, this may sound like a conspiracy theory, but let's imagine this story happening in our modern context. Imagine that the year is 2019, and all of a sudden, the White House produces a document from George Washington. And the White House says, we just found this in a basement of the White House somewhere. And in the document, George Washington, quote unquote, says, you know what makes us really American? A wall between us and our southern neighbor. You would immediately say, did you really discover this in a basement? Or did you write it yourself? So W.M.L. DeWitt put forward this hypothesis in the early 19th century and said, I think Hilkiah wrote the book of Deuteronomy to advance Josiah's agenda. And stunningly, over the last 200 years, modern archaeology has continued to verify this hypothesis. So much so that there is near unanimous consent that Hilkiah authored the book of Deuteronomy among scholars today. So when we talk about the contexts of Deuteronomy, we talked about the setting and the reading, but we also need to talk about the context of the composition, which is around the year 615 BCE in the city of Jerusalem, and it's most likely authored by the high priest of the temple, Hilkiah. And here with this scroll in hand, Josiah leads a genocide and massive religious reform that are the actions of a tyrant, but instead of condemning him, the people of Judah, as far as we know, applauded him and viewed him as a virtuous God follower. Which raises the question, how does Josiah commit genocide and then get the people of Jerusalem to see him as virtuous? He does it by telling them a story. And this story revolves around Moses speaking to the children of Israel 700 years before the reign of Josiah, telling them that the most important commandment in all of God's commandments to Israel is that they should not have idols, which is exactly what Josiah wanted. If that wasn't enough, there's these moments of transparency where Hilkiah isn't so subtle that he wants the people of Judah in his day to follow these laws in Deuteronomy. Chapter 4, verse 25, Moses says to the children of Israel, when you have had children and children's children and become complacent in the land, if you act corruptly by making an idol in the form of anything, and then Moses goes on to say that that will be cause for removal by God from the promised land. And when we consider that Moses has talked about how God has shown God's favor to them by slaughtering men, women, and children, we have to acknowledge that what happens here in Deuteronomy is there is an establishment of moral hierarchy. And that moral hierarchy states that every moral takes a backseat when it comes to the second commandment, that you shall not make graven images, Or idols. So Hilkiah retells the story of Moses and reprioritizes what Moses prioritized in an effort to advance his and Josiah's agenda in 615 BCE. What this means is that the retelling of the narrative of Moses greatly influenced and shaped the ethics of Hilkiah's and Josiah's nation. And this retelling of the narrative enabled the genocide that Josiah committed to be viewed as ethically responsible in the eyes of God. When we consider these three contexts the setting, the composition, and the reading what comes to light is this human condition and how we respond to the stories of our histories, of our religions and our present realities. What the story of Deuteronomy teaches me today is that our narratives shape our ethics. The stories we tell ourselves inform what is right and what is wrong. This came into a tangible fruition last Wednesday on January 6th, 2021. When, for the first time since 1814, the United States Capitol was stormed and taken over by invading forces. These domestic terrorists knocked down barriers, bludgeoned police, all in an effort to stage a coup against what democracy decided. Now, I think what's interesting about this story is that I can empathize with the people who stormed the Capitol to some extent. And the extent to which I can empathize with them is that if I believed that the presidential election was rigged, that a candidate was stuffing ballot boxes or it somehow hacked into servers and changed the number of votes, if I believed that the presidential election was rigged, then I would find it ethical to storm the Capitol. I mean, wouldn't you? Imagine if someone broke the law in order to win an election and the people who were in charge turned a blind eye to it because it served their political agenda rather than them being concerned with the destruction of democracy. At that point, I think that you would also find it ethical to storm the Capitol. So I can empathize with the people who believed that their presidential election was rigged so they stormed the Capitol. But that is the extent of my empathy because there's one major problem with that narrative. And the problem is that there is no evidence anywhere of significant voter fraud. While we have heard claims of voter fraud for months now, there has not been any (laughs) evidence, anything that would suggest that voter fraud occurred or that the election was rigged. And what's interesting to me is the fact that the people who are claiming that the election was rigged know that it doesn't matter if they produce evidence. Because rather than providing evidence, the losing campaign provided a narrative. That's why the losing campaign filed all those lawsuits And while people thought it didn't matter that those lawsuits were thrown out, the fact that they were fighting communicated to people that there was a narrative out there, backed by the President of the United States of America, that the election was in fact rigged. The losing campaign even started sowing this narrative before the election took place, saying things like voter fraud will happen, mail-in ballots can't be trusted, All of those statements had a specific purpose in the fact that they were crafting a narrative that people could believe because they knew that our narratives shape our ethics. And what's interesting about human beings is that we have a tendency to believe in narratives that serve agendas that we want to see accomplished. And the more that we want to see that accomplishment, the less need we have for evidence or facts or science, because it ultimately serves us in the end, doesn't it? So there was something about keeping this president in power that was serving the people who stormed the Capitol. And when you look closely at who it was that was storming the Capitol, it was by far and away white Christian men. And white Christian men believed in droves that this election was in fact rigged, because that rigging of the election serves a greater narrative that ultimately led to the Capitol being stormed. This was explained by Dr. Hakeem Jefferson in an excellent article for the website 538. Now, Dr. Hakeem Jefferson teaches at Stanford University, and this article he wrote was on January 8th, two days after the Capitol was stormed, and it was entitled Storming the U.S. Capitol was about maintaining white power in America. In that article, he cited the work of Dr. Larry Bartles. Bartles interviewed all sorts of Americans about what led to them being anti-democratic. His conclusion was that the single survey item with the highest average correlation with anti-democratic sentiments is not a measure of attitudes toward Donald Trump. Now, I personally found this part of the article quite surprising because I assumed that it was just blind loyalty to the losing candidate that led people to the Capitol. But Bartels pointed out through his research that that simply wasn't the case. Instead, the single survey item with the highest average correlation was inviting respondents to agree that discrimination against whites is as big a problem today as discrimination against blacks and other minorities. Now, Dr. Hakeem Jefferson went on to write about what that meant for us today. Jefferson said that white Republicans who have come to oppose democracy do so in part because they don't like those whom they believe democracy serves. He then goes on to write, and more than that, they believe that the interests of non-white Americans have been given priority over the interests of their own racial group. So when we think about those who gathered in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday and who will surely continue their advance in opposition to democratic rule, let it not be lost on us that they do not simply come in defense of Donald Trump. They come in defense of white supremacy this excellent article gave me pause because it made me realize that all of this violence, all of this storming, all of this insurrection was done in an effort to protect the narrative that whites receive equal discrimination as people of color. And when you think about what this president represents, The current president is a validation of the untrue narrative that white Americans are discriminated against equally as people of color. And that narrative that white Americans feel today is what led them to believe without a shred of evidence that the election was in fact rigged. And so the greatest way that you and I can combat whatever it was that happened at the Capitol is to tell the narrative of America with science, data, and facts. To continue to share with ourselves and with each other the well-documented and well-researched fact that people of color face more discrimination, more prejudices, more obstacles than white people in America today. And while that may sound like it is insignificant, The fact is our narratives shape our ethics, and so it's worthwhile for us to spend time, energy, and effort telling the narrative that is rooted in reality rather than a narrative that we choose to believe to uphold white supremacy. Our narratives shape our ethics. And while this may seem like a high and mighty elevated kind of political conversation, The fact is, the narratives that we tell ourselves and each other is a very personal choice. And the most important personal choice we can make is to allow new information and science to help shape that narrative rather than wall ourselves off and allow ourselves to believe false narratives out of a measure of convenience. Think about how we tell the narrative of the United States of America. I was told about how the Founding Fathers were concerned with equality and justice for all more than anyone else in the history of the world. But we all know that simply isn't true. The Founding Fathers built a nation on the ideology of white supremacy, which is why our country's original sin is white supremacy. And you can see that in the way that our country treated both Native Americans and people of African descent. The systematic genocide and betrayal of indigenous persons and the overwhelming disregard for the humanity of slaves in the name of economic profit are absolutely intertwined to the very fibers of our country's history. Now it's really stunning is that white Christians would attend church on Sunday and then go home and beat their slaves or campaign for the extermination of indigenous persons and see no problem with those ethical violations. And the reason they could do this week in and week out for centuries was because they would attend church on Sunday and hear a narrative justifying the most horrific ethics that you and I could possibly imagine. To justify the treatment of indigenous persons, white preachers across the country would tell white parishioners the story of Joshua, the unprovoked military conquest, and how America was God's promised land just like Canaan was God's promised land for the Israelites. According to that narrative, you can kill, you can slaughter, you can betray, you can imprison anyone who gets in your way of God's promised land because God gave this land to us. The narrative of Joshua shaped white Americans' ethics toward indigenous persons. In regards to slavery, white preachers would tell the story of Noah cursing his son, Ham. Now, they would add all sorts of extra biblical information about Ham's skin color and the descendants of Ham. But ultimately, the whole idea was that the narrative of Noah established a racial hierarchy that permitted the enslavement of people of African descent. And the narrative of Noah shaped the ethics of slavery in America. Now, what's really interesting to me about both of these stories is that both of these stories are held up as true and continue to be preached by white Americans today. Why haven't we condemned these narratives? Why haven't we stood up and said, you know, there's a lot of problems with Joshua. Why haven't we told Christians and the world of the immense evil that was enabled by an interpretation of Noah's story and his son, Ham. By allowing those narratives to continue, we continue to uphold the sin of white supremacy. And when you consider our nation's long and terrible history with the original sin of white supremacy, it's about time that we change the narrative of our country's history so that we can move forward toward greater equality. Narratives that are grounded in truth matter. Narratives that change based on new information and new research and new science and greater humanity absolutely matter. Narratives that we tell ourselves in our churches change the way that we interact and behave with each other, and they matter. Our narratives shape our ethics. And the question that I would like to close this podcast with is what narratives are you telling? What narratives are you telling yourself? What narratives are you telling each other? What narratives are you telling your children and your parents? Because the fact is our narratives shape our ethics. And we are in dire need of narratives rooted in in reality. To my brothers, my sisters, my friends, may we have the courage to look at our narratives closely, to allow them to change when we are presented with greater opportunities of humanity, and may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all of our narratives as we continue to strive to grow in love.